Welcome to the Unearthed Man Podcast, the journey of becoming a conscious man, hosted by Milva. Hey all, Milva here, and welcome to episode 36 of the Unearthed Man Podcast. To kick off, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we work and gather, and their continuing connection to land and waters. I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. I pay tribute to the diversity of First Nations peoples of Australia and their ongoing culture. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, then welcome aboard. If you're one of my regular listeners, then welcome back. I really appreciate your ongoing support. If you're looking to know more about The Unearthed Man, then you can find me on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Now, before I move on to today's guest, I just wanted to say what a pleasure it was talking to Jedi Azuma last week. As you would have heard, Jetty has a quiet peacefulness to him. However, at the same time, he's very purposeful in everything that he does. I love his newfound connection to the Native American prayer and what he's doing to bring back true initiation processes. Now, on to today's guest. Since the commencement of the Unearthed Man podcast in 2020, I wanted to have a chat with today's guest. He and I have a lot in common when it comes to overcoming a certain addiction, meditation, and what's become a newfound interest for me. He's been a practitioner and teacher of personal and spiritual development for over a decade. An avid student of mindfulness and meditation, he graduated from the Blue Mountain School of Mindfulness Arts Seminary Program in May 2018 with a master's in Buddhist ministry and was ordained Osho or priest in May 2019. In his capacity, he now serves as a spiritual guide and interfaith chaplain in prisons and hospitals. He began his studies in Buddhism and New Thought as a young adult, seeking resolution to his own personal life dilemmas. Overcoming his 20-plus-year 20 20 compulsive relationship with porn, he was inspired to share his journey and support other men in their path to liberation. Through his online Facebook support community, Making Peace with Porn, he currently runs the 90-Day Liberation Bootcamp, as well as the 10-Day Porn Abstinence Challenge. He is passionate about the community's commitment to support men in ending their toxic relationship with porn so they can reclaim their power and create a life worth living. Welcome to the Unearthed Man podcast, Matt Sinkovitz. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Well, Stephen, thanks so much for having me and thanks for that introduction. No, no, it's uh, no problems at all. It's, uh, as I said, it's, since I probably opened up my journey, which is the back end of 2019, I, you know, we connected in on Facebook and then I was certainly watching what you were doing. Um, in Facebook and particularly around, you know, the, um, you know, making peace with porn area. Yeah. Um, I know I was part of that group as well. Um, I sort of dropped out of groups because I was getting too consumed in social media, but um, I love what you're doing it because for me, I, I was the same. I, you know, one of my addictions, alcohol was one and the other one was porn. Um, you know, I stopped watching porn in November, 2019 after I sort of went through my process Um Glad to say I haven't uh, watched an episode since. So uh, that's something I'm definitely very proud of and I'm certainly quite passionate about now. So um, your journey, let's uh, have a chat about uh, your journey and you know, where you got to, you know, where you've come along, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big uh, that's a big conversation piece. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing, you know, the porn and alcohol have a way of going hand in hand. Um, yes. you know, one, one has a way of fueling the other, certainly. Um, yeah. So for me, I'm, I'm 38 years old at the time of this interview. And, uh, so I, I, as you mentioned in my, um, introduction there, 20 plus year, uh, relationship with pornography started in my teens. You know, I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, 
be introduced to the internet when internet was just dial up speed in the house. Yep. Not like a lot of kids today who have, I think a bigger challenge ahead of them with the phone in their pocket, being born with that thing in their hand almost, you know, but yeah, mm. um, got into pornography at a, at a young age, like so many boys out of curiosity, excitement, and kind of unaware of the potentially toxic or damaging effects of, of pornography in my life, you know, and something that continued on through my young adult years and into my, you know, 20s and 30s. And it wasn't until, you know, I would say into my 30s, I began to kind of really awaken to the toxic nature of pornography, the way that porn seemed to be impacting um, all the key areas of my life and was really, I found to be a, a, an impediment to my spiritual growth, to my personal growth, um, you know, relationships, uh, business, and, and really connecting to my own sense of purpose in the world and, and the work that I felt called to be doing. And um, in, in, in my spirituality, you know, my, 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 my walk with God, whatever that means to you. And um, yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really just of it. And, and I really feel that it was um, uh, impacting my sense of um, um, the, the integrity, maybe I, I would say that I felt as a leader, you know, moving in, yeah. into greater, greater levels of leadership, kind of recognizing that porn was out of alignment for me as a man, the man that I felt called to be my own sense of integrity. I felt there was a, um, an impact there as well. So ended up getting my own coach and my own support around it and doing the deep work and, um, you know, continue to do the work around, um, around pornography in my own life and, and my own sexuality, which has been a big theme for me. So yeah, big, long journey, um, but a lot of success. And it's really cool to be here today, having this conversation with you on the other end of it, you know? Yeah, no, cool. And I appreciate that. Um, I'll take a step back. I'll, I was a video uh you know the days of video porn um so made a bit harder to hide because you had to at least put it in a videotape and, and the television but you know i don't know if my wife was going out or different things like you would sneak it in and yeah you know and that of sort course. of thing so yeah so so my history runs a little bit longer going back to the fact that uh, you know the good old days of video and then obviously yes into dial up and so forth uh, i just want to touch back because one of the things uh as you said there is like uh, incongruence between you know the leadership and, and wanting to become a leader and also and i really want to talk into you know your spirituality and you know where you're with the buddhism and, and those elements because I, i'm fascinated in that area as well mm -hmm. um and you know being with porn because there's a lot of shame and guilt that runs with porn yeah. so was was that part of where you felt the incon incongruence or that was how do you align the fact of if i want to be a leader and and, and follow a spiritual journey but i'm actually got this level of you know, underlying shame, guilt, almost, you know, um, self-worth and, you know, uh, looking back in at yourself. Is, yeah. is there elements of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not sure exactly why pornography does uh, have this impact and, and uh, seems to create feelings of guilt, shame, fear, remorse, um, uh, affects our sense of self-worth. Um, that could be our own story around it, but it also could just be because it is so much out of alignment with maybe who we are or who we're called to be. Maybe there's something on a very subtle spiritual level that kind of, um, that, that we know is just out of, out of, out of congruence, you know? Um, so for me, I think, I, I, again, I think into my twenties and into my thirties, I began just to awaken to one, the, the negative impact it was having in my life, but also that it was just not cool for me, you know, mm. and there was just something not, not good, not healthy about it. And it was also in my 30s that I began moving into more spiritually 
aligned work, you know, being called um, more to the work that I do now uh, in, in the Buddhist tradition and really feeling called to work with others and being of service to others and share my gifts and, and, um, and my talents in that way. And also at that, you know, in, in my thirties, I began doing work in, in prisons and stuff like that, leading spiritual groups, meditation groups, uh, mindfulness groups in, in, in uh, our local county prison. And it was just moving into that kind of work, you know, that I just kind of felt like, man, uh, it, it's, uh, it felt out of alignment, out of integrity for me to be doing that sort of work or moving into that sort of work when I still had these unresolved skeletons in my own closet. There's something about porn that uh, doesn't allow us oftentimes to look into the eyes of others, honestly, you know, mm. and um, I, I felt like in my work, I really needed to be able to do that. You know, whenever you see me, I'm not hiding anything about myself. You know what I mean? Or of course there are parts and components of my life, which are personal, but I don't have anything that I've guilt. I have this shame uh, around, or if someone knew about it, I would have, I would have a deep, I would have a deep shame around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, on a very similar page with you when, when it comes to that, the interesting thing that I'm probably finding now, and I'd be interested in your thoughts is how much are we, um, there's probably two two things that I want to ask. Um, maybe I'll go back to the first one. Is the one of the challenges I had of having the addiction into the porn and being with that is then the separation of objectifying and subjectifying women, and you know, and then that relationship you actually have with you know you know with the other gender, being the female gender. Um, but but I obviously you know I can't talk on behalf of like the homosexual community or you know or you know the lesbian gay that area, but. I'm guessing it's probably something similar in the fact that if they're watching porn, it's objectifying, you know, whatever that attractiveness is, as opposed to just seeing them as a, as a beautiful human being. And I know that even now that's something that I work through and, and I'm working through it. You know, I have to keep questioning myself. If I see someone, am I seeing them as just another beautiful human being, or am I actually seeing them as an object due to a whole of addictions I've actually had yeah. um, your, your thoughts on that? Well, it's very true. You know, we, 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 grow. I think, I think there's probably a normal part of it, of, of, of you know, being a, a young boy, a young man, you know, we are bred to, to procreate and the sex drive is a real thing. And there is this attraction that exists, you know? So I think there's a healthy part of it. Yeah. But I, I, I think that porn really creates this unhealthy, unrealistic objectification. And we see women even more so as just a sex object and something to, you know, someone or something to do something to, you know? Mm. And um, yeah. And, and, and I think that, that that's very unconscious. I still notice that within myself. I think I'm still, um, I, I think that's still filtering out, so to speak, you know, as I continue to, to grow and mature and learn to see through a new, a, a new lens, I still notice bits and pieces of that, that exist. but hundred percent, I think we condition ourselves to do it through the consumption of pornography. Mm, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I know that's something that I'm working through. The other element that I, I didn't want to talk through is, um, and, and I spoke with Jenny, uh, last week about this is, you know, the word that sits a lot in my mind now is around indoctrination. And for me, porn's almost to a degree, it's one of those things, as you said, it's like, it's, it's on a mobile phone in someone's pocket now, like before, as I said earlier, like you had to find a way to actually make sure no one's home. So you could at least put the videotape in, like, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's an area with on that, but now you can almost be watching it anywhere as you're walking along the street or so forth yeah. if you want to be secret enough. So how much are we normalizing it now? Like how much is it almost being seen as, you know, 
and and what's the risks around if it becomes normalized as opposed to going no that is still not an appropriate thing to be doing yeah which which, which leads into the work I, that you're really doing about the um you know making peace with it yeah mm-hmm. yeah it, it's very much normalized and um there's almost a a humor around it you know uh, I, I think in, in conversation in, in society today it's just viewed and kind of perceived as something very normal that people do uh, I, don't, I think a lot of people don't recognize that it, that it is such a deep issue for so many people you know the people that do joke about it or just kind of write it off don't don't recognize what's really going on behind the scenes for a lot of men but I think yeah the fact that it um, it's just kind of viewed as just something normal that that boys do which it is. And, and, and maybe there is, um, you know, I definitely, I like to play devil's advocate and recognize that maybe pornography at some level c- can be healthy and maybe someone can have a healthy relationship with it. Um, but, but for guys like us, or maybe who people who have a toxic tendency toward it, I, there, it, it can be very unhealthy, but yeah, it's definitely been normalized. And, um, just between the societal conversation that goes on around it and the expectation that guys are going to do it anyway. Um, there seems to be a lot of joking. You know, I, I talk to a lot of men who deal with this and when they bring it up, uh, maybe guys in, in military environments and stuff like that, it's just a bro thing and just, Oh, you know, whatever, no big deal. And um, it's just very normal and, and it's joked about. And um, yeah, especially, especially being on the phones today. Um, it's, it's just a very, normal part of people's lives. I think very unconsciously, they don't even kind of recognize maybe the ramifications of it. Um, and, and also because of that, there's this desensitization. I think that, that that's occurring to, to sex, you know, and, and, and to women and um, the whole, the whole porn genre in general seems to be getting more and more extreme and, and graphic in nature, you know, as it becomes more, more normalized. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, the other thing that, that pops into mind as we're having this conversation is h- how much do you feel that this is now uh, removing the role of the father to actually, you know, like they're, they're, for one of the challenges, I think like my parents, strict Catholics, right? And and so, you know, I think, think about the book that everyone got, which is this is what happens to your body when you grow up, right? There, But there was never any conversation except for don't ever, don't ever get a woman pregnant outside of yes. marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the five things my parents told me not to do, which I successfully achieved. Um, <laughs> the... But I feel that there's parts of that now where people, because that, because people, there is still this uh, dogma about having sex talk, sex, the sex talk with your kids yeah. and the embarrassment behind it, that mm. it's now easy just to say, oh, well, they're probably going to be watching porn anyway. So I don't have to take on that responsibility as a parent because they're probably going to talk to their mates and they're probably going to be able to look at it and they'll work it out anyway. Yeah. Are you seeing that happening? Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. I think, you know, that was the, that was the situation for me. Like I grew up in the Christian home and, and sex was just kind of a conversation. You didn't have that much whenever you did have it, it was kind of awkward. I'm not really sure parents knew how to approach it. I remember my dad tried to approach it, but it was, it felt awkward. I think for him, it felt awkward for me. And, um, so that's a tough conversation. So I think that's one reason I think parents don't really know how to have that conversation sex, which is a normal, healthy, good thing, a good, normal, healthy part of human, uh, you know, being a human, that's how we all got here, um, is off the table. And it's, it's made very awkward and uncomfortable in a lot of homes because it's been repressed and suppressed, you know? Um, so I think, I think, um, it's an awkward conversation. And I think also parents just don't know how to approach that conversation or even today, 
I couldn't imagine being a parent trying to regulate my kids pornography use on their phone. You know, that Ooh. device is tricky and kids know how to circumvent anything, you know? So I'm not sure. I feel like a lot of parents must be at a loss for how to even regulate this activity on, on the phones today, unless they just took the phone and set parental controls maybe, and took, took over the password and did some really, you know, took a real hard line approach or something like mm. that, but it seems like a big challenge. And I'm, I'm sure that's what a lot of parents run into today. Oh, def- definitely agree. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think for me, what that means is that the risk that we now have as uh, sort of men trying to help people become sort of, I suppose, more open and, and living more in this conscious space and, and more in a spiritual space is um, we're having more and more of a generation of uh, boys who think they're men, like because they ha- they haven't actually been able to move out of that. They're, they're still in that you know, if it's a porn addiction, potentially that's still that 15-year-old is a 30-year-old male. You're still in the 15-year-old fantasy land about, you know, the porn and how it sort of works. And there's elements where you haven't actually initiated and gone through the rite of passage of actually treating sex as being a, an energetic connection and a sacred connection that you're actually having with your partner. It's it's seen as a almost an external physical activity yeah. as opposed to this this is still have it but but put some ceremony into it and understand the energetic connection and understand the sacredness of the body and how it works and so for me there's this generation of boys and girls because i know there's even girls who basically are you know in, into porn and, and and watching a lot of porn so there is this challenge i think in the next generation about how can we slow down this 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 toxic culture, mm-hmm. if, if you like to, to put the harsh term onto it. And how do we bring people back to be Kings and Queens and, and men and women, you know, um, in, in our society. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that, man. You know, I think, have you, have you heard of this, this idea, like in child developmental psychology, you know, if, if, if a kid is, is traumatized, you know, at the age of eight or nine in a certain area, if that, if that is not addressed and healed, you know, um, and, and brought to the light, it's like they can be stuck, you know, energetically in that place, you know, all the way through adulthood. It's like, you got to go back and do that deep work. And I have a suspicion that pornography, uh, just like any sexual trauma may act as, as a trauma, you know what I mean? Mm. To, to us. And, and maybe in, in many ways, as you kind of mentioned, maybe we're still acting, feeling, thinking, perceiving like that 13 year old boy, that 14 year old boy that first picked up that, 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 that porno magazine and got into porno, uh, pornography heavily, you know? Uh, so, so I do this work with men that are in their thirties and forties and fifties. And, and we recognize that they're still viewing sex and women, you know, through this young kind of teenage lens, you know, and, and not only the way in which they see women and treat women, but also the way in which we act around sex, we have to hide around it. We have to sneak it. You know, you're still acting like that, 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 that young boy in, in, in many ways. So yeah, uh, there, there seems to be a hang up and a lot of the work that we do is going back and revisiting that young man and allowing him to, yeah. now, to, to now grow up and, and usher him into adulthood, seeing through a more noble lens, you know? Uh, and I'm all actually fully aligned with the, um, the child aspect. Um, so the one that there was a good conversation that I'd had um, with one of the other guests that was on, on the podcast, um, uh, why we anger from the amend movement. And the way he put it was two adults having a conversation. But what happens is you're right. Our child gets, when that trauma happens, there's a snapshot of that child at that point in time. And that child has never known that the adult outside it has actually grown up. 
And you could have two, three or four traumas. And then you end up with two adults having a conversation. What happens is the child steps in the middle and goes, no, 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 hang on a minute. I'm going to take over here. And you end up having two or three hurt children having a conversation. The adults are standing back going, where the fuck did this go? Like, yeah, yeah. sorry about language, but yeah, where did this go off in a funny direction? Like, I thought we were talking about this. Yeah. And it's not till you recognize that it's each of those, you know, it's the six-year-old and it's the 12-year-old and the 14-year-old have all stood in the middle going, no, no, we're going to take over this because we were traumatized and we're reacting now. Yeah. And and and, and just right, it's, it's being aware of that and being able to come back and say, is that really me or is it that 14-year-old that's now actually, you know, acting? Or if you didn't perform that night in bed, then all of a sudden your partner says something and you have this massive reaction. It's because the 14-year-old felt they had to perform a certain way due to a porn film they saw, yeah, right? Yeah. And they thought that was, you know, yeah, I have to be able to last for an hour and a half or else I'm not this, you know, magical study superstar, yeah, right? Yeah. Not really realizing that that took five hours to create that one movie. Right. <laughs> So yeah, there's a lot I think that that does come up in a lot of our lives about how we act, and it's like trying to recognise when is that little child popping up in front of us, and we're like, no, no, it's okay, I've got this one for you, exactly. You know, but 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 let's go and have a healing session on, yes. on why you thought you had to jump in. So yes, yeah, yes. definitely. Um, so let's move into the spiritual world for you. Um, so yes, you've been through this journey. Um, but yes, you, there's this underlying call or underlying, you know, probably the inner being is saying, hang on, there is a calling for me. Yeah. Um, it said you started in, in a Christian household, mm-hmm. but you've sort of more moved to cross into uh, the Buddhist uh, side of it. Yeah. Um, can you talk me through that journey? Yeah. So, uh, so I was born in, in a Christian household, grew up uh, in the Pentecostal church, uh, non-denominational church, and uh, grew up in missions work, um, prison work. Some of my earliest memories are visiting uh, inmates in, you know, state state prisons with my parents. My mom still runs a big, large Christian prison ministry in the state of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, through my younger years, my parents were always off to Haiti and Mexico doing missions work. I went to China doing missions work when I was a kid. So grew up and, you know, at one point I was in my teens and I was in at church like four, four days a week, you know, four times a week I was at church. So, and, um, you know, for that, I really thank my parents because they gave me a really good foundation. Uh, they helped me to experience and and begin to explore this idea of God and, and the divine. And I think they gave me a good moral foundation for, for my life and a good moral compass. So it was good. And as I grew, I just, I found that, what I was given wasn't really answering all the questions. And I Mm. still had a lot of, a lot of questions on my own, which had not been addressed to my satisfaction. So I just began exploring and doing my own work. And, you know, within any, I think, rigid religious, you know, um, environment, there's this kind of, there's this built-in fear. Like if you ask a question or you step outside of the boundaries, you know, or you don't believe, then there's a fear of uh, the threat of eternal damnation. So I think a lot of people will just stay in that box, whether they're conscious of that or not. Mm. But for whatever reason, I, I, I had the courage to step outside of that and begin asking some more questions. And also I, I found myself uh, in my mid twenties, really in a really deep, dark, depressed state, really feeling victim to my mind and to my thinking and to my feeling. And um, was was in, was in a really dark, uh, really a dark kind of obsessive place. And okay. it was around that time that I um, picked up and, and began exploring ideas around mindfulness and meditation. Like, how do I get out of my head? And how do I take a step back here and 
you know, I was in, I was in a really tough space. So that, that prompting, I remember there was a really specific time that I kind of had this moment of awakening that if I could see my thoughts and I could experience my thoughts, then maybe that wasn't the whole part of me. Maybe there was something that could also perceive my thoughts. Maybe there was this observer, you know, idea. So I remember having that, that moment of awareness, which was a a, a big moment in my life. I think, you know, recognizing that, okay, I'm having a thought, but I can also see the thought, you know, and that was, that was a big insight for me. So it was around that time I began exploring meditation, mindfulness, which ultimately led me to Buddhism and led me to a local meditation group and then led me to a local order or chapter. And then I ultimately ended up going into seminary and studying with my teacher, you know, in mindfulness, uh, mindfulness, meditation, mindfulness, arts, Buddhism, and ultimately ended up becoming ordained um, as, as a, as a Buddhist Mm. minister. Um, And, you know, so, so my, my path was really just a path of, seeking resolution as you mentioned in my in my biography to my own dilemmas in my own unanswered questions and my own suffering really and i wasn't receiving those i wasn't receiving that with what i had been given so that's how i kind of got on my path but with that i'm i'm still very much an interfaith man i'm still a man uh, i'm still an ardent to t- a student of the of the teachings of christ and and all teachers of truth and all way showers and as a matter mm. of fact i'm sitting right now at uh, at, a, at a level one trauma center where I've been serving for the past year as a chaplain resident, you know, uh, and serving in the interfaith chaplaincy setting, you know? Um, yep. So I really honor the unique and individual uh, paths of, of all and whatever that unique relationship with God might look like, you know? And um, so that's kind of what led me to my journey. And, and whenever I began in seminary and, and decided to train under my teacher, I did not do that because, I was planning on doing what I'm doing now or even getting into the work that I'm doing now, but I just really wanted to deepen my own study, my own practice. And I've always felt kind of a spiritual calling in my life and a, and a calling to serve mm-hmm. others. And I've also been heavily involved in personal and spiritual development for many years and, and investing in myself and doing this, my, my own work. So I just felt at one point in my journey called to, to be of service to others and, and to work with others this way. And my personal and spiritual development work kind of came together with my ministry work and the work I was doing in Buddhism and interfaith chaplaincy work. And um, it all just kind of came together. And, and that's how I kind of ended up where I am now and, and, and continue to move along this path. Uh, uh, and that's, that's beautiful because it, the, the alignment between you and the job you do is, is so wonderful because the amount of people that aren't in that position, you know, here's who I really think I am, but here's the job I'm actually doing yeah. because I have to pay the man and I have to pay the mortgage and I'm indoctrinated and I have to do all these sorts of things. Yeah. And, you know, that's where people don't really understand it. You know, stress and stress management is a whole different topic, but yeah, there's those elements. Um, I would like to double back because I've been doing, you know, the word awakening is is really interesting. I know I, I had my awakening a couple of years ago um, through a, a weekend session that I did, which I've talked a bit through on, on other episodes, but oddly mine was through breath work um, where um, I had, I literally, I went through three phases of um, basically wanting to die, happily wanting to say I could die now, I'm all good. So almost going through a death phase, going through a grieving phase, and then watching uh, what I call the demon of anger leave my body, like physically felt it leave my body. And for me, that was a very ritualistic process of the death of 
part of my ego of who I was, the grieving and allow myself to grieve that death of that person who I was and allowing that spirit part that had died to then physically leave and then coming out the other side and going, oh, mm. yeah, and never felt so light and so happy. And then since then, my my openness and my willingness to talk through things and just explore in in an in open-minded fashion is just amazing. You know, pretty much going from judgmental to as non-judgmental as I can or as inquiry as I can. Beautiful. So the awakening process, I love. Um, I, I, I'd love to to talk through a bit more with you about what does that, you know, when you, when you sort of said you went through that, like was there an actual, what was that experience? Was it like in a deep depression or was it in the middle of a meditation or, or where did that sort of take place for mm-hmm. you? Can you recall that? Was it anything specific or? Yeah. I feel like I can see myself still sitting there. I was, you know, I started, I started my professional life in the hotel industry and, um, you know, I got a hotel degree and I was, I worked my way up really fast. I was young. I was like 25 and, um, doing really well in the corporate hotel industry, but I was really unhappy. And, um, yeah, in this, in this deep depression, like I mentioned, obsessive thinking, I think OCD and just the mind just going in circles and circles and a lot of self-loathing and definitely didn't like myself and all the crap, you know, and the, the way the mind can get all twisted up, you know? And, mm. um, yeah, I just wanted to die. Sometimes that just feels easier, you know, and, um, it feels like relief and, um, mm. I, I feel like I can still see myself sitting at my, at my office desk, you know, but I, I feel like I can, I, I feel like I just remember the moment when I just kind of had this awakening, this awareness that I kind of stepped back and I could just, I just, it's like I, I woke up and I could just see that I was having thoughts, but I wasn't my thoughts. Now, it's not to say I live like this all the time because it's easy to still get enmeshed in our thoughts mm. and be totally identified with our thoughts. And we really do identify with that ego self. It's like it feels like us maybe most of the time. But I just for a split second, I just could see the difference. You know, it was a difference between the observer and then, you know, whatever part of me was, was having the thoughts or doing the thinking. And I saw that and it was just this little glimpse this little shimmer of light that said, wait a second, if I can see it, maybe that's not all that I am. And I think I was able to step back and maybe uh, just step back from my identification with it for a moment. But yeah, it was very distinct. Like, I feel like I can zoom in right now. I can still see myself sitting at that desk. Like I'm the observer now looking back at that version of myself, having this moment of, of insight. And, and, and that was really it for me. But it, I think the there was a lot of work probably done prior to that and a lot of seeking and a lot of asking and a lot of study. And there's been a lot of work done since then, you know, but I was just given. And 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 I think if, if we all, I really do believe brother, you know, you know, in the Bible, it says, you know, knock and, and, and the door shall be opened unto you, you know, and seek, you know, and, and you shall receive, you know, and, and I believe that I was seeking. And I think if we do that, you know, ardently and consistently and, you know, um, devoutly enough, we will receive the answers. And I was, I was seeking and I was suffering and um, I just received a moment of insight. And um, that was, that was what I needed. And that, that deep, dark time in that moment is, is really what opened the door for where I am right now. You know? Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that's the interesting thing. Um, You know, again, those who are, I suppose, you know, conscious, you know, versus unconscious mm-hmm. in, in their thinking, those who have become more conscious, which doesn't mean that we, that there's a judgment that those who aren't, 
It just means that we've had an experience where we've been an observer of ourselves. We've actually had the opportunity to go, oh my God, that is just my ego. And I'm so attached to that egoic thing, or I'm so attached to this piece or, you know, and, and I'm the same as you. I, I catch myself, you know, all the time, whether it be in conversations with my wife or even, even at work, I'll often stand back and go, or, or that you were just seeking validation then like you were just this you're attaching these are parts of your ego that is still coming out mm-hmm. but being in a position to observe that um sometimes i argue whether that's good or bad because sometimes <laughs> staying asleep your whole life may not be a bad thing yeah because once you sort of wake up a little I'm bit like, you, and, and you're catching yourself all the time you go oh, you know how long is this going to take but but you know but it's a good thing to actually be because i i feel like particularly in the work that you're doing and enables you to actually see that the person that you're dealing with in, in the prison systems or, you know, or in the, the social justice systems, it's not who they are. Mm. It's, 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 it's a result of, um, of a combination of things that have happened to them over their life that their ego is attached to that has actually created them to be this thing. But underneath that, that's not who they truly are. And being able to help people, detach or actually become that observer and actually see that this is conditioning from my mm-hmm. my culture or my parents or everything else it's a, an amazing place to get to um you know yeah it, it is and i think one of the greatest gifts we can give to others is to see the potential in them you know if we want to look at it from a biblical perspective to see the christ in them to see the divine in them you know in the hindu tradition at the end of yoga class we bow to each other and we say namaste you know the light in me bows and honors and sees the light in you i think that's one of the greatest things we can do for others you know and um you know mother teresa talked about that mother teresa talked about learning to see you know christ in all his distressing forms you know mm-hmm. and recognize that that man sitting in that prison cell in that in that meeting room in his in his jumpsuit that that's me you know that's me if i were born uh, you know in, in his condition you know what i mean mm-hmm. so and that's compassion i think you know so learning to see myself and others and recognizing that you know um it, yeah it's it, it's all part of our conditioning and, and we all have that 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 greatness and that potential within us you know and that's the work that you and i are here to help support you know yeah like, absolutely and you know and that's yeah it, it'd be you see tragic events that take place and I can see the person who might've been the perpetrator that took place. And my first thing is not to condemn them. It's like, what has happened in your life that has resulted in you having to take that action? Like I, I'm completely compassionate for him going, what took place that took you to, to the point where you might've, you know, harmed kids or, or murdered somebody or done these sorts of things. Like, because that's not you as the essence of the true you. And so I, that's my first place that I like to be able to go to and to go, I'm really interested. Like where did we as a society not support you enough that that's what the outcome was mm-hmm. because there's a failure elsewhere in the system or in not recognizing some of that early enough in your life to have actually had that sliding door moment where if someone intervened, or had an awakening moment or helped you have that your life could have been slightly different, but it ended up over here. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think. Uh, mm, 
Oh, I forget what I was going to say there, but yeah, I'm with you. On, I'm with you on that. Maybe I remember. I had. I thought. Oh, oh I know what I was going to say. My, my, my. Um. Yeah. So, so I think you know we're, we're put on these trajectories. You know, we're we're born mm-hmm. in this environment, and I think a lot of people end up there in those really difficult situations. They have been sleeping the whole time. They don't really know. I mean, they're, they they know on some level, but they're kind of unconsciously operating, you know, out of this early conditioning, you know, out of this, you know, nature versus nurture. I don't know, but they're set on a, on a trajectory. And, and, and one of the things that my sensei, who's a brilliant man, has taught me to, to learn to do is to learn what kind of like similar to your practice, Stephen, is whenever we see someone acting in, in a way in which maybe we want to judge them, learning to see ourselves as them. And learn to see, uh, you know, them as us asking ourselves, why would I do that? You know, or if we re- if we really want to personalize and asking ourselves, why did I do that? You know, and that really kind of ties back into like this oneness principle that we are all interconnected, you know, but that mm. really helps you see maybe through their lens or walk just a little bit in their shoes. You know, why would I do something like that? Well, maybe, maybe, you know, I didn't have it so good when I was growing up, you know, so it's a practice, man, but I think it's a, wor- a worthwhile and important practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the the timing of this conversation has been quite good because uh, I've always had an interest in Buddhism, but have never actually sort of done enough research or looking into it. Um, and I've just finished reading The Three Pillars of Zen, mm. which is um, I think Philip Gardo, I think, uh, wrote that book. And it was the first real true insight I got into Zen Buddhism and, and how it worked. And interestingly, my meditation practice is based on more of um um, I think Maharaja Krishna based more Indian based practice. Whereas that question is um, who was I before my parents were born? And in the Zen Buddhism, one of the questions to go through is what was my face before my parents were born? And it was really interesting to sit there and go, yeah, this is still, they're both coming from the same ancient background conversation of when the meditation. So like, you know, and then when the thought pops in, it's not like, it's not about when you meditate, you're never going to have any thoughts. It's more about to whom is the thought occurring. Yes. And and being able to separate and go, say so that thought came in, but to who did that actually occur? Was that to my little eye, my ego mind, or was that to the, the big eye? The answer is it's always the ego yeah, mind. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's a trick question, but the reality is, yeah, and, and that's what I've really loved now in, in, in diving back into that, and and but also seeing that, you know, the Zen Buddhism element and what I'm doing, what I've been doing, that they're very close in basically getting to to that understanding that um, we're all the one and then moving away from the labeling aspect, you know, do I walk up and go, oh, that's a tree and then I observe it or I just see something that's got some beauty in front of me without actually saying that's a tree, that's a flower, that's this sort of thing and that's the oneness that's coming in going, I can just see beauty in what's around me, or I can I can be grateful and thankful for the divine, the creator, the God. Again, what what do you want to call it? That actually has put this in front of us. Yeah. Um, and then the other aspect is um, coming to terms with death is just inevitable, and it's okay. Mm. And so you know, um, I, I'm I'm very comfortable in that aspect now because I know that you know what's before me and what's after me is going to continue on. There is just this this body form that'll just decay when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay for people to grieve for it, but it's, it's a really good uh, comforting space to get into. Uh, are you, where does that sit with you? Is that something that you've, cause you know, being Osho and, and, and in that space, is that some of the work that you've also done from a, a Buddhism point of view or? Yeah, absolutely. A, a good friend of mine once said that, 
you know, it's important that we contemplate our own death, you know? And, and so, you know, a lot of people think they have an idea about what occurs when we die, but we don't know, you know, it's the great mystery. So we'll, we'll see, you know, um, mm. I have a feeling that, uh, some sort of transition occurs, you know? Um, and I, I like to think I'm at peace with the idea of my death. However, who knows, <laughs> who knows whenever that time comes, uh, how, how I might feel about that, you know? Um, but one thing I really love to do in the practice of contemplating my death, I walk in a cemetery close to my house almost every day. And, you know, I like to think that, um, life is fleeting, and no matter what, one way or the other, nobody gets out of here alive, you know, so why don't, li- why don't I live my life more fully and make peace with mm. the idea of my death now? Because it, uh, it is inevitable, you know? And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a practice in the, in the Buddhist tradition uh, where we really, it's like, a, it's like a contemplation of our death and we see ourselves as a, as a body that's dead. And we, we, we view the, the body decaying and turning into a skeleton and ultimately turning into, into dust, you know? Um, but just, I think familiarizing ourselves with that idea, making peace with that idea and recognizing that everything is impermanent you know, mm. and uh, there's nothing to be afraid of and uh, whatever, whatever good and loving energy that brought us here, we can trust that on our way out, I think too, you know? Yeah, no, definitely great. And, and some of the things that I've been looking into is more some of the indigenous native American, um, Australian Aboriginal, you know, and, and how they see things and, and they have this, you know, particularly in Australia, it's like connection to country, which is why I gave the acknowledgement at the start of the podcast but they they do not differentiate between animate and inanimate objects. To them, they are just all part of country and they're all connected. Mm. You know, so the rock, the rock is as sacred as the kangaroo is as sacred as the trees, is sacred the flat. They've all got a place to to go. And the interesting thing, the rock was there before we were born. The rock's going to be there after we've gone. Like, so it is actually more enduring than what we are. Although as humans, we, we hierarchy ourselves above it. But yeah. the reality is like, yeah, that rock has a, has a much longer lifespan and, right. and, and living uh, than what we do. And it's, and it is living its truest and fullest life. Indeed, It knows it one, one, it doesn't know it's a rock because we call it that, but it just knows what its role is and it's doing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. And it's not comparing itself to any other rock going, yeah, well, that rock's a bit bigger than me. Like, yes, it yes. just doesn't do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So again, that's for me a really nice alignment about where yeah. we sit and it's a nice grounding sort of uh, practice for me. My teacher uh, teaches a beautiful um, concept. He calls it incense living. <clears throat> and uh, the phrase he uses is that the world is on fire and we are paper, you know? So it's all burning and our life is fleeting before our eyes, you know? And this idea of incense living says we can live our lives uh, and, and like what, what scent will we choose to leave behind? Will we live our lives beautifully and leave behind a beautiful scent like incense? Or will we live our lives not so beautiful, beautifully and leave behind a stench, you know? So I think contemplation of how we choose to live our lives and, and the legacy we choose to leave in our wake. Man, uh, that's beautiful. I actually really love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly going to uh, to think about that moving forward. And that's why I love having these conversations, right? So, so every man I get on, like there's that different angle and there's that different perspective and there's that different way of actually viewing or seeing things. So yeah, I, I do actually love that. Um, you've been fantastic with your time. I really appreciate you know that uh, you've, you've jumped on today. What I'd just like to ask at the end is, you know, is there a message 
for, for the men, the boys, or even, you know, the women that are listening into this who have got men in their lives. Mm. Is there a message that you would like to sort of sort of leave? I know, you know, uh, the, the main space that you've been trying to work through is this making peace with porn, um, mm. but I don't want to direct you there. A key message you would think you'd like to leave are others so that, uh, you know, they, they can walk away with like a little summary view. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in regard to the in regard to the the porn conversation, Stephen, I would just say, if you sense that that pornography um, maybe is out of alignment for yourself, I think you know if you're sensing that, it likely is, you know, and and I would recommend just just giving it a try for a week, fourteen days, and and one see if you can do it, and that's going to be a big indicator for you. Um, and if you are able, and, and if you're not, you know, that's going to say something. Um, but if you are able to achieve 10, 14 days porn free, you know, really take a look and notice the subtle differences that you begin to experience. I find that uh, we all find, you know, the work that we're doing, uh, we've identified that porn is a very toxic thing. And if we can begin to uproot and, and weed the garden a bit, or, you know, our, our beautiful natural essence can begin to just come through. We can connect more deeply with our own, with our own spirit, with our own essence, and um, really get back into alignment with our own sense of integrity. Uh, from a, from the, the standpoint of a woman, you know, who maybe doesn't understand why her husband can't just quit looking at porn. You know, there's some really deep, um, deeply ingrained embedded wounds that are there. And um, he's obviously trying to meet some needs which he's been unable to identify, you know, on his own. So um, there's, there's more to the story there, but there is, there is hope, you know, and there is freedom available. So that would be my basic message, I think. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And they're both really strong messages. I, I really like what you've touched on in the last one. It's about, you know, do, do women see that as you know a bad thing or can they actually have the compassion to understand that, that there is something they're trying to feel, but it's not, it's not, something they're trying to feel because the the woman in their life is not giving it to them. It's yeah. something they're trying to feel from a previous trauma mm-hmm. that was before this relationship took place. Yeah. And and it's deeply ingrained. Mm-hmm. And so don't take it personally that they're potentially looking at porn. Try to understand and help them go through that healing journey. And whether that you yeah, whether they get in touch with a counselor, whether it's in touch with a men's group, whether it's in touch with something else, help them on that path and help them start to move down that journey and then just be patient with them and give them compassion. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what we can actually do to try and help you know, men and women that might be also addicted to, to move through this space. Mm-hmm, for sure. Awesome, Matt. I really love this conversation. Um, you know, we've covered off many things, porn, you know, spirituality, the Buddhism aspect, um, all areas that, uh, you know, I've either had addictions to, or I'm currently passionate about, um, you've enlightened me. Um, and that's what I like. I, I learn every time I come onto this to talk. So thank you for your enlightenment. Indeed. Thank you for your open and honesty. And, um, I wish you all the best for, for the rest of your day, although it's probably your evening over there. So you're probably getting ready to knock off work and you know, go home and have a lovely meal and get a good night's sleep. Yes, brother. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, I look forward to a continued uh, connection, brother. Cheers. Thanks, man. We'll chat soon. Yes, Cheers. So uh, that was uh, Matt Sinkovitz. And, you know, I, absolutely uh, what I actually hope this conversation would be is exactly where it went. Um, I just love uh, the men that come on board and they're just openness and honesty about the journey. Uh, I really love Matt's uh, talking into his awakening process and that ability to 
you know, have the moment of seeing himself as an observer of his own thoughts. Uh, that's super powerful. Um, and if anyone can get to that space, it is, uh, it's an amazing journey to go on. So that's a uh, wrap for episode 36 of the Unearthed Man podcast. As I said earlier, if you want to find me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. So that's it for now. Seeing you much love and peace. Milbo. Mm-hmm.